0: Thanks for listening to the Dr. Drew Podcast on Podcast One.
1: I'm Martin Cove, sensei John Kreese from the Cobra Kai TV series and the Karate Kid trilogy. And I'm hosting a new podcast, Cobra Cove, with my own kids, Rachel
2: and Jessica. We're breaking down Cobra Kai episodes and talking about everything from pop culture to bullying and personal development. With all kinds of great guests from the TV series, Hollywood, and the mental health world. Listen to Cobra Cove's now at Apple Podcasts,
1: Spotify, and Podcast One.
2: Do you have a problem with that? No, Sensei! Sensei. Sensei. I mean, Dad. everybody. Welcome to the Dr. Drew Podcast. As always, uh, thank you for supporting the Corolla Enterprise. It keeps the uh, wins in the sails. We keep doing this thing. We enjoy it very much, and uh, I think I hope you enjoy it. If you have suggestions, be sure to let me know. A good place to send suggestions is contact at drdrew.com. And, of course, uh, drdrew.tv, where you can see the uh, live streaming shows as well as uh, check me out on the social media. I need more over at Dr Drew Pinsky, Dr. on Instagram. I do some lives. You can check me out there. There will be an announcement if I do it. Today it is my pleasure to welcome my friend Brian Kilmeade. The book is "The President and the the Freedom Fighter," Abraham Lincoln, Frederick Douglass, and the Battle to Save America's Soul. Brian, welcome.
1: Uh, Doctor Drew, am I overdressed?
2: You are overdressed, but this is all sound only. Jacket off. This is sound only, so they can't see that I essentially have my shirt off, and you look like you're going to a a wedding or a prom. A prom. But, uh, of course, everyone knows Brian, uh, co-host of Fox and Friends, uh, Brian Kilmeade Show, weekdays, 9 to noon Eastern, uh, and also frequently on the 5, and uh, occasionally tiptoes into the uh, Greg Gutfeld Show to suffer some abuse at at uh, Greg's hands.
1: Yeah, why do I do
2: that? I, I wondered you that. that, you, that you were on about three nights ago, <laughs> or last week, and I was thinking... Wow, uh, is it worth it? It's late there. You could, you're you going to have to be up at five to do the, I guess it was a, was it a Friday night show or Thursday you were on?
1: Uh, the Friday the table at two It's is it probably a Thursday.
2: Okay. So you have an early morning show the next day. Why did you at least do the Friday show? So you don't have to worry about waking up the next day.
1: Well, you know what? That's, uh, I mean, emotionally, you got to wonder what I'm putting myself into. I did the five and they say, Hey, you're doing the five. Can you stick around and do Greg show? and I said all right what the hell and then as soon as I started I say what am I doing
2: well you know what's interesting is you know having lived at both CNN and been around Fox News a little bit like you got to remember I was at CNN for 10 years um, yeah. Fox is much more loosey goosey than people have imagined. <laughs> There's a lot of, hey, are oh, you yeah. around? Are you around. Would you mind commenting? <laughs> what, what you, what you and, and very little, uh, what are you going to say? Except it's more like, do you have something to say? Yeah, I have something to say. So yeah, go ahead and show up if you want. And by the way, speaking of that, um, Kat is going to be sitting in for Greg coming up in an upcoming show. I'm going to be on that show with her. See if you can get on that Great. one too. That'd be fun. I don't know if it's too oh, late. Is that
1: next week? Yeah, or that's uh, that's coming up. All yeah, right. it's I'll try to next week. I'll try to do that, but she'll be fine. She'll
2: that, do great. Well, but I want I want you and I to be able to gang up on her, see. I want you to be there with me, <laughs> so it'll be fun. Uh, and really, and that's what people also don't understand about Gutfeld shows. That's the primary role of the guest is to gang up on the host. That's really what he tells you he goes just make fun of me. I'm short. Make fun. It's easy. <laughs> and
1: so, right, and, and and does it blow you away, Doctor Drew, that he's doing so well compared to the network shows?
2: It it really doesn't for a couple reasons. I was telling Joan, his one of his producers, for a long time, it should have been on Five Nights a Week. I was like, this show, this is a this reminded me of politically incorrect that show, and I knew what a hit that was. I know the format works. I know, and and having like worked with Corolla all these years now, I know there's a hunger for non mainstream kinds of content and broadcasting. So to me, it it seemed like a no brainer. I mean, the fact that it's so effortlessly killed. That was a bit of a surprise, and that it's it's maintaining it is a bit of a surprise. Uh and that they don't have to do more to maintain it. They don't have to dress up like needles and dance in a in a you know, in a like Colbert does and have to do a full musical comedy routine. They just keep doing what they do. Yeah,
1: the, there's a couple of things I think uh Bill Maher nailed it. Bill Maher said what I just said about the ratings, so he said I wanted to check it out, and it's funny, and the reason why it has a conservative, in his mind, and the reason why a conservative-oriented comedy show has not been funny is because he believed that the left has not been really great fodder for it mm. until recently. Oh, he says, we are making a joke of ourselves and this part of the cancel culture, the political correctness, not knowing what gender you are, um, picking a pronoun, uh, the wokeness is, has, is almost tragically comic, uh, uh, tragically... Uh, Comedic, and that that he goes that opened up a area for Greg Gutfeld. He said, "I watched it and it was funny."
2: That that's interesting because I I've known Bill for literally decades. I used to do politically incorrect all the time with him. That's how I got to know him. And uh, I I he is an extremely bright guy, and when he makes observations like that, they're usually accurate. So I'm going to say that's probably right. And I stand behind him, a Bill. I mean, he I don't necessarily agree with him all the time, but he his thinking is good. His opinions are. Defensible, uh, you know. E- even when he got in trouble, I don't know if you remember how he lost politically incorrect, he essentially <clears> made a joke about what makes courage. In other words, he was saying, "I'm not sure it's courageous to send a cruise missile off a ship as compared to sitting behind the pilot's uh, yoke and driving into a building." He goes, "That takes a bit of courage." Cancelled immediately, and I thought, I said, "No, dude, your your logic is sound. I mean, I don't like it that you said that, but you're you're not wrong, and you shouldn't be canceled." And I've sort of been in his court ever since.
1: Yeah, his monologues over the last year and a half could have been uh, substituted for Tucker Carlson's. Yeah. Because they are very similar outrage. We want to get to the point where we can go box again, but we can't even get in the ring because they changed the rules so severely uh, to the point we don't even recognize the game. Yeah. And I would use the game is not the right word, but yeah. recognize the competition. You know, the Democrats and Republicans fighting over taxes and, and defense buildups and stem cell research are the good old days. Right. Now it, we're fighting over the most ridiculous things and trying to catch another one. And the investigations that are going on do nothing except embitter the other side to win the next election.
2: Do you think people are more able to see through the falsities, the distortions, the histrionics in, in news broadcasting today?
1: I think so. I'm not positive, though. Although I've been to, with this book, I've been to probably 25 cities in six weeks. Mm. And I've talked to so many people. I don't just sign the books like I'll personalize I have a few words with them. And for the most part, they're all in and they're all worried, uh, number one. Number two is I think, you know, the cancel culture, I see it, but people are also worried. Worried they're going to be next. And it's because it's not just celebrities, you know. yes, Yeah you know the stuff that you know, what do i say how is it going to be misinterpreted how am i going to be targeted yeah uh how am i going to be uh left out to pasture and it's not just mitch mcconnell and donald trump
2: yeah it's scary no no it's it's and you don't have to it, if you're in the public it's going to happen and i i don't know if you and i talked about this before the but the strange thing about the cancel culture that i have found and having been so called canceled enough times now it it's been interesting because i can see it acutely which is that um it's never what i said it's what somebody said i said yeah. you know what i mean and that's what and that's what goes uh and i don't do you know the story of how i well one of my catastrophes over at cnn how that sort of ended no. so i was i was there for a long time uh and i was mostly doing commentary and then they gave me a show over at hln and we had a really good team of mixed political opinions. They they never told us what to say or talk about. It wasn't like there was some overlord telling you what to say. Uh, we, and we were we were sort of charged with doing the kind of secondary stories. So we end up doing like Casey Anthony and Jody Arias, and and we do other stuff too. We would do you know, I, I would fill an audience with like Trump supporters and go, Why, what do you see in this guy? Or, I, or I'd put I'd put a bunch uh, all all transgender in the audience. Go, you know, what's what's struggling? What's tough for you? And and we just, we, it's a show that would succeed immensely right now, but it was having trouble finding an audience back then. Uh, and then they decided to end the show uh, because it's expensive. And they, they were sort of winding down HLN. They got rid of Nancy and me and, and uh, uh, Jane. I don't know if you remember that whole lineup at the nighttime. Yeah, sure. And, and, and then about six weeks later, uh, I was on Don Lemon's show. And I, he was, you know, like, what's up with Donald Trump? And I was like, well, you know, let's talk about personality disorders and presidents, because there have been a lot. I mean, my favorite president, we're going to talk about the book in a second, which is my other favorite president, but my real favorite is Teddy Roosevelt. And Teddy Roosevelt was a severe narcissist with bipolar disorder. I mean, the guy was a maniac. He would, when he was a police commissioner, he'd run around the streets at night and beat people up. That's what he did at night, beat up people in the street if he didn't like how they were behaving himself because he couldn't sleep. And if you went to have a meeting with him, you'd have to walk through Washington, D.C. because he couldn't sit behind a desk. He was so hypomanic. And I, and I thought, you know, be careful with uh, labels because some great presidents have had some real significant <laughs> psychiatric stuff going on. And Lincoln, who we're going to talk about, was severe depressive, severe, severe, severe. And, and uh, I don't know if you know, he also was OCD, and he had an obsession that he had syphilis. There's a book called The Lincoln Marriage. I don't know if you read that as part of your research. But that, that academic uncovered – are you still there? Oh, there you are. Um, uncovered oh, yeah. Uncovered communication between Lincoln and a Springfield doctor that was caring for him before he left Springfield, where he became convinced he had syphilis because he visited a prostitute down by the river, down by the rivers, uh, to quote uh, Chris Farley. Um right. And he put him on mercury, uh, and he Lincoln was so obsessed that he had syphilis that the, if he stopped the mercury, it would come back and he would expose Mary to it. He stayed on mercury during the first half of his presidency, and the major side effect of mercury is depression, and he is described as having had severe depressions during those early years. So isn't isn't that interesting? Is that another sidebar? Of I history? never knew that. Sidebar never of knew that. Sidebar of history. Um. so anyway, so the next day I went into my radio station and my, my program director went, hey, that was interesting. We said about Trump last night. Can you give us 30 seconds for our website? Uh, yeah, all right, I can just, just distill it down. And then as I'm getting up, he goes, ah, you know, balance it out. How about 30 seconds on Hillary? You anything you want to say about her? And I went, you know, funny thing. They just released her medical record. And the care she is getting is atrocious i had i have i have so many critiques of what the doctors were doing with her that i could tell it was the patient dictating the care they clearly wasn't getting proper medical care so i did 30 seconds on that i wake up the next day the drudge report puts out a headline finally a doctor says she's not suitable medically for office which is not what i said at all and it became this viral nuts and cnn came down on me like a ton of bricks like a ton of bricks that was the first time i'd encountered anything like that over there and uh and then a week later we canceled the show because we had planned already to do that and then of course now this the viral story is see he was canceled because he had the because he spoke out on hillary which i had neither were true and i went back to CNN and i said how about i come on and set the record straight because it i'm i've I'm, no hard feelings you know this has not been a fun experience, but uh, this whole experience with you guys has been great, and i would happy to set the record straight. They're like, shut up, just shut up, and that was the – I'd never been on there since. Was that interesting?
1: Yeah, I, I do remember reading that, and, but you do stand by what you said in that you do think she was getting bad care,
2: right? Oh, and they, listen, her doctors right. responded to everything I said as though they were interrogatories, They they literally said they really addressed and they sent her to a hematologist for a hypercoagulation workup exactly as I suggested because she was getting like really suboptimal care. I mean she had she had two clots in her legs and a clot in her transverse sinus in her skull. That is way out coagulation abnormality. Something is going on, and they had her on a medication. And by the way, she had a stroke as a result of the. clot in her skull that's why she wore that those glasses with the opaque thing that's called intranuclear ophthalmoplegia from the stroke and uh and they were giving her armor thyroid and she wasn't even formally hypothyroid and i thought oh that's the patient saying i want to lose some weight or i need some energy and armor thyroid was reported i did a literature search as causing hypercoagulation so i was like this is horrible medical care and they did adjust they adjusted course quite a bit so there you go. That's my story. But going
1: through that, going through that was really
2: disconcerting. Right? Disconcerting. I mean, it's terrible. It's yeah. awful. I've, I've yeah. been through, and and it was so my. It was one of my early experiences with shitstorms. Although every time I'm on your radio show, I've come to anticipate a shitstorm because your producer <laughs> will take out something I said and take it out of context and push it out, and then lo and behold, shitstorms ensue. But I'm getting kind of almost used to it. You know what I mean? they are just so many right. now. It's, and and that's why yeah, I'm wondering if people I, are sort of seeing through some of this stuff. It's like, ugh. I hope so. already. Yeah, and I feel like they're. I f- mean, you
1: know my. My thing with the text messages uh, with ICE was Oh yeah. Jordan, January 6th, yeah, 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 January six, yeah, January six riots. So I'm uh, going from TV to radio. I have six minutes, and in, in which time, if I was on the air with Pete Hegseth, Pete Hegseth's covering it, the rally. And I go, where are those people going? Pete He goes, they're going to the Capitol. And I say, "Well, that's not going to be good. There better be security there." And I go upstairs and I go to do radio. I look up and I see what we all have seen a million times. Yeah. So while this is going on, I do what I always do. If I want to get new information, I text newsmakers all the time. Is this true? Did this happen? Did the president really go to the basement during the riots? He goes, "You will tell this on the record. You could set this straight." And I could I could sit there and give my show the best information. And I knew for this window, I would have great contacts. I don't know if I'm going to have it in the next presidency or the next one, but I have that one. So when this happens, I text Mark Meadows, and I text, and I'll tell you, I'll text Mark Short, I text Haley McEnany. What is going on? Do you understand how bad this is? I also test members of the Trump family, not Donald Jr. And I said, uh, Eric, you got to stop these guys. I go, does this, is this, do you want this? He's like, absolutely not. He goes, Brian, you've been to my rallies. This is not our people. Our people aren't violent. These aren't our people. Ooh. So I obviously am in the eye of the storm. Wow. Eric has never would never say something like that. For Don Jr., by the way, to say, Tell my dad to get on TV or whatever he said, shows you there was no script to that. Mm. Nobody wanted that to happen. If the son who gave the keynote address during that stupid, ill advised rally. If he didn't know this was happening and knew it was bad, that shows you that actually, I think shows you Trump had no idea, but he should have hopped on TV earlier. So they exposed it. But the thing that they misdrew is that I never changed my stance on January 6th. I never soft-pedaled it. So I went back and I pulled all the sots of me saying January 6th, I I don't care how many people were there just to create havoc. Trump set it up by saying, go to the Capitol and be heard. And Rudy Giuliani said, basically, show your muscle. And I said that, I, they, my guy stopped pulling sound bites after about fifteen.
2: Well, that's, over the course that, of the next that's six months, the weird thing to me is, Cat uh, brought this up the other day too. That, that somehow the anchors at Fox endorse that behavior or that whole January sixth I I'm Not, not a one of you that I've ever talked to is anything other than like that was a bad, horrible thing. It was awful, right? It was a riot.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, but I, you know, do I think that CNN should be doing fifteen minutes of every hour on it? And that's why their ratings are cratering. You have never seen ratings this low on a major network like this, and um, you know, on any given hour, we're doing five, six stories.
2: Why do they? I wonder why they keep doing that. Why they keep? I, they're I wonder. Trump
1: if, obsessed. They've lost their equilibrium. They're Trump obsessed.
2: Well, it's so it's all sort of Trump derangement. But but they they are having been lived over there, you know, for a long time. They're very rating specific. And by the way, they, when they look at the ratings. You know, Fox at the top. We we would put our hand over Fox and then look at everybody else. Really, one hundred percent. And we we look we'd look at CNN, MSNBC, everybody, and uh, we would just specifically like not even your hand would just go over the Fox ratings because it was so ridiculously higher than everybody else. But they were obsessed about it. I, I wonder if they're trying to switch to a like a pure digital outlet. Like they really don't care about what's going on. Maybe it didn't, somehow supports their digital projects. You know.
1: Well, at some point, advertisers want to know people are watching. Yeah. So wherever we go, and like you know the Fox Nation thing, you would love to be uh, you. You would be uh, you perfect for the channel, period. But let alone Fox Nation with everything going on, but uh, so we're ready to stream. We're re- We 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 invite people to stream instead of looking at it as a threat. So you, I'm on an iPhone right now. You touch the top. No one has to tell you this, Drew. You're on podcasts all the time. Touch the top. You're on. I can't tell you how many people I grab their phones in line or during my book tour, and I tell them about the radio show. I go, just touch the headsets. I go, what do you mean? Can I have your phone? You have my app, right? Boom, touch the headsets. If you want to watch TV, you don't have to rush home. Touch it. I'm telling them this for the first time, and we are doing this as a company. So to me, if they said that, that's like a cop out. It's like, oh, I don't really want people to watch. You know, we're not that good. I think that they. They would love to get
2: ratings. Right. That's true. That's true. It's not like they would, would uh, somehow like object to getting ratings. That's <laughs> no, 100% true. Well, this year it is time to invest in yourself and relieve some of that ongoing anxiety and sleeplessness. Headspace, everybody. That's right. We say we feel fine, but we don't really mean it. Headspace is scientifically proven to help you manage your feelings and your mental health. Recent studies showed that in just two weeks, Headspace can reduce stress by 14%. Whether you're looking to relieve anxiety and stress, sleep better, improve focus, Headspace is your daily dose of mindfulness. I particularly like those very short meditations. They're very easy to to put into your day and they have significant benefit. Well, whenever you feel eh, not so great, maybe Headspace Appreciation Course so you can instantly feel happier about what matters. However, you're feeling, try Headspace at Headspace.com/drew. Get one month free of their entire mindfulness library. That is the best Headspace offer available. So go to Headspace.com/drew today. One more time, that is Headspace.com/drew. I remind you all the time about our friends at AMCN. You, you know, if you have a need for an air medical transport, you can get hit with the full cost or certainly high deductibles or copays. Protect your family and your finances with an AMCN membership. That's right, AirMedCare Network membership. As a member, if an emergency arises, the expense of an air medical transport is completely covered when flown by an AMCN provider. Membership costs as little as $85 a year and covers your entire household every day, even when you're away from home. That is just pennies a day. And we all know the unexpected can happen, so AMCN membership is a protection that no family should be without. For a limited time, as a Dr. Drew podcast listener, you will get up to a $50 e-gift card. When you join, simply visit airmedcarenetwork.com forward slash Drew and use that offer code Drew.
1: Today, we launch Goya Cares.
2: The mission of Goya
1: Cares is to love and care for God's precious children. Part of that mission is to bring awareness. Be
2: somebody to somebody. To
1: stop. The abuse and trafficking of future generations.
0: With awareness comes prevention.
1: Every
2: life is a precious gift from God.
0: You are one. I'm a
2: precious gift from God. I'm a precious gift I'm from God. I'm a precious gift from God. I'm a precious gift from God. I'm a precious gift from God.
0: We will do this through a series of educational videos that we can bring to community leaders, schools, parents, and children. Even though the subject matter is very dark and heavy, the kindness on the set has radiated throughout the project. This is going to bring a global call to action. Goya Cares. Hopefully
1: we can save people's lives.
0: And be the light that blocks traffic. We need
2: to be God's light.
0: Join Goya Cares and visit blocktraffic.org to watch the series.
2: All right, so let's get to our our project at hand here, which is, of course, this amazing book, which I've told you before I love. These are two historical figures that I am essentially... Well I know a lot about, and I would to say that i 'm obsessed with them would maybe not be an overstatement they the Lincoln reading Lincoln biographies, probably starting twenty or twenty five years ago, is what backed me back into studying history again and and I've done a lot of my historical sort of studying through biographies as a result of getting so preoccupied with Lincoln. but one of the other sidebars I got into well one of the other great figures I got into. Uh, through biographies again was uh, Frederick Douglass who I've become, i become I just he made scales fall from my eyes uh, several times on, on several just seeing the world through his brilliant assessment um, just made, made me see things made me see stuff that I had not seen before it made me guilty frankly that I didn't see things quite the way he articulated them and uh, in your book again Abraham Lincoln Frederick Douglass and the Battle to Save America's Soul I have told you hits the highlights that you, you just nail the really important moments for these two figures, and and you don't you you are condensing a lot of history into a, a short book essentially, but you don't miss anything. It's it, the important beats are there, Thanks. and which I just love. Uh, and so you clearly researched the hell out of this. Um, the first important-
1: thing I did, though, what yeah. I did is what I did is is that when I'm reading these biographies, and when you read Frederick Douglass's own words, I go wow. I'm going to be able to knock out any critic because I'm using quotes. I'm going to build these chapters around the quotes. I'm going to get the premise and get the quotes. And the first thing I did was what we're doing now, talking through. I have this great editor, and we sat there, and I had to pitch it. They weren't for it, uh, the idea of doing this. Two people at once, you know, where's their unique angle? I'm like, well, they're together. And we went back and forth. And I go, I can't avoid race. I know we've been able to avoid race now. I want to take on race, but we don't need to do the plowed ground of civil war. So the first thing I did is talk the whole thing through. And they would say, she taped it all. And she would come back and she goes, I bounced it off some historians. We think you're getting too caught up here. I think you're getting too caught up there. And that's, that's how we would start. Before I would put one thing down, first thing I did is research for about three months. And then I said, this is, the, this is what I really want to do. And then it was just back and forth, back and forth, and we would tape the whole thing. And that's how we did it. I try to do it in a conversational way. It's one of the reasons why the book on tape flew.
2: Oh, interesting! I got, that
1: was the fastest I ever got it.
2: Because it is so conversationally, it does, it does, it does sort of. It feels like you're telling a story, and I think the really uh, nice uh, component of this book and its timing is that it came out just after the Failed Promise, which was about Andrew Johnson and Frederick Douglass. And these are these are if if you want to kind of take a glimpse at a glimpse at this history, the, your book and the Failed Promise I saw that re- cover it, cover it very, very, very well. So let's talk about these guys as as i said um lincoln uh unlikely hero uh in a lot of respects right i mean people forget uh you know because he is he is mythologized and and uh you know obviously his assassination suddenly made him you know uh, for the ages as his secretary of war said he was not, he was hated i mean he was not a popular figure by any stretch of the imagination the vast majority of his presidency.
1: I mean, he didn't get any Southern votes at all. He got 40% of the vote and none of the South. And because the uh, uh, Johnson's Johnson's Douglas's party divided itself, he was able to slip in and get the win. Plus uh, it's a brand new party. They were able to unite around these Republican, this Republican party. And he wasn't running. This is, I think this misconception I had, I always thought that Lincoln basically ran as an abolitionist. Absolutely oh no! Not. Oh, no! 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 Yeah, the second term, abs- you know, Yeah, he based there was so much about that was yet, but not in the first. So let's talk so there about was that. A promise yeah. there to keep Douglas from going to Haiti and right. bailing out of the country.
2: So, so he he had an evolution, uh, uh, and and some people will vilify him for having ever been the way he was, which was of his time. He was a racist, full on. Uh, though he, even though he was a racist, he concluded that slavery was, quote, a wrong. You know, that, that was the difference between he and Stephen Douglas, which was, you know, the, Douglas would say, I don't care if slavery is voted up or voted down as long as the rights in the territories are preserved. And Link would say, there's certain things you don't get to decide. You don't get to enact a wrong, and that's where you and I disagree. But his solution was that the slaves should be repopulated to Liberia. That was his idea. He, he had, it took a long time for him to understand that that these are African Americans. Americans, And Frederick Douglass was key in helping him see that because that was Douglass' thing from the beginning, which was, you don't understand. I'm as American as any of you guys. I just came here through a horrible means.
1: Which is awesome because here's a guy that could hate the country and said he wanted to. I'll make the country better. I don't know anything about Liberia. I just want you to be open to this, mm. is that there's an excellent chance that Lincoln was smarter than everybody. So how do you choose to reluctant white people who believe that slaves should be free, but they don't want to fight for slave? They're not going to fight for black people. How do you convince them? Well, if you believe enough of what Lincoln's doing, you at Lincoln has to convince the people of the North, the Union, that I tried everything, and this is the only way for us to exist together. Yes. We have to find a way to live together. That's now, right. how do you convince people to do that? Well, I have an idea. Let's call the press into the White House. Call the black leaders of its day, absence of Frederick Douglass, in there and make this proposal. Money and everything. i got private donors. We're going to be able to ship you out. We're going to be able to give you uh, some start money and we're going to just apologize for all this and come off very crass and direct and unsympathetic. So, I'm open to it, and I believe it more every day, that he almost did this as a show. Because as a leader, you, can't, you can be the ultimate abolitionist. You're leading a country that wasn't ready to be led by an abolitionist. And he knew it. So, okay, yeah, guys, you're fighting, and the, the guys succeeded, and we're going to get this country back together. We're going to bring the union together. And just by the way, uh, we're fighting for slavery. But that's not the main reason you're fighting. But gradually, that became the main reason we were fighting. That's what oh, it was about. Oh, oh yes, if they did, did not have slaves. They wouldn't. They, if they didn't have slaves. We wouldn't have the war. Yes. But the North wasn't ready to emancipate the slaves. If you said you were fighting for emancipation, they would have said no. So how do you get them to your route? How do you bring the country, what's left of your country, around to what you're thinking? Show them that you tried everything, and maybe colonization, while a theory, you might have thought about. He said, "I have an idea. Let's make a show of this. And when it fails, and no one takes me up on it, let them know that this would never work. We have to learn to live with each other. And the and that's why he didn't invite Douglas.
2: Yeah, I can't, I can't read his mind. Uh, but I, I do. I've read a lot of his words, and he, you know, he definitely had a Eurocentric white view of the world. I mean, that's that's his perspective, and that's all he'd ever been exposed to. Let's be fair." Um, But I I don't think you have to really remember that abolitionism was a radical position at the time. Radical. And the closest thing to an abolitionist was Seward, and he did not get elected president. And yet Lincoln, that was his singular advisor. That was his probably closest advisor. He he loved Seward and loved Seward's point of view. Uh, So he may have had more sympathy for that than we know, just judging by that relationship, number one. But he but I really believe in his soul he's a lawyer. That's his that's his that's his he's like made up like a lawyer. And right so, and wrong. Yeah. Yeah. And so he he interpreted what was happening through a narrow legal lens of contracts amongst equals, right? The the constitution is a contracts amongst equal to form a more perfect union. One one side of that contract is not allowed to just exit the contract without the agreement of the rest. That was his legal interpretation. Therefore, the idea of succession didn't exist. There was no such thing as succession. And you know where that logic first came out it was Andrew Jackson. Andrew yes. Jackson had a succession crisis, and he had used the same logic exactly. This is not something that exists. Therefore, South yeah. Therefore, it's an insurrection. It's, it, it's You are in rebellion because there is no secession. The Constitution does not allow for that provision of secession. So here's what the deal is. In the meantime, I have an obligation to send food and resources to the mail. I have to continue to deliver the mail. And to the forts, like Fort Sumter. And so it was when he sent the ship in to provision Fort Sumter, because the South said, if you sent provisions in, we're going to fire on you, which they did. And that was the beginning of the war.
1: And did he know that? Did he provoke it? Uh, a la they accused FDR of leaving the ships out there in order yeah. to start a war that he thought we belonged in.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: So, I mean, that can go back and forth. It doesn't mean, I-, I also think the one thing I talk about when I get on stage, I, I decided to do. Uh, my own thing on stage and not wait for the speeches because the speeches weren't coming in this environment. So I talk about all these, all these, uh, I talk about all these stories in one. And uh, one of the things that comes up is people evolve. And yes. just because you don't think that in the beginning, it doesn't mean that you think at the end that you gave up your values. People change yes. and grow. Yes. You, that's what you used to, you would be doing. If you weren't talking to me on television, you're helping people grow.
2: There you are. Um, yes, I, I think I think we should we should applaud people for evolution and growth. I mean that should be celebrated when people come, particularly if they go from more racist attitudes to more equanimity. I mean it's just like come on, let's we should be yeah. we shouldn't condemn that person for the rest of their life. We shouldn't like that they were like that, but come on board with with uh, the rest of us in equity. That would be great. Um, so I yeah I don't understand condemnation. And, and Lincoln evolved a lot, and and Douglas was part of it, and Douglas. You know, Douglas is such an interesting dude. I mean, oh my God, was he smart! And we're, we lost Brian for a second, so we're back now. Um, Douglas was an interesting dude, a brilliant dude, and found most acceptance early in his career in England and Europe. Interestingly, where his thoughts were just consumed uh, as though he was some sort of uh, prophet, talk, you know, speaking speaking from on high. It was really interesting to me the way he was accepted in Europe, and it took quite a while to get it going here. He uh, he had some real headwinds. He was all the way through his life was terribly mistreated, including his newspaper being burned down late in his life,
1: and maybe his house. Yeah, you know, they suspected arson, and it's just a lot there. When I went back there to do this TV special on it, uh, it's true. But he still came back, right? I mean, he still came back. He could have went to Europe and had an easy life, and he came back to finish the work here, make America more perfect union. I I think this is uh, what you you
2: have to understand about him. Yeah, he he had an absolute, again, as I understand him, uh, commitment to the notion that the slaves, as they became citizens, were every bit, A, an important piece of the history of this country, and B, citizen with the full rights and privileges and uh, look forward to them participating as any other citizen in this country would participate and almost got there. It was early early, in, early in Reconstruction. It was kind of going that way. Uh, and then Johnson and then the Democrats and then the Democratic uh, state leaders just destroyed everything.
1: And uh, that's why I think I told you on, on our other, the other time we were on the air together, I would say that the single person who did the most damage to America is not another outside force, not uh, the Japanese in Pearl Harbor. It was John Wilkes Booth. Mm. Because if you had this Lincoln and you combine him with what we now know of Grant, uh, the greatness that he was, the great person he was in his own way, and then you combine that with the genius of Frederick Douglass as a self-made man,
2: mm.
1: we would have been a different – we would, might not have needed the 1960s.
2: Yeah, yeah, the, and, and I and understand what Brian is saying is that, that we were going towards uh, a very highly integrated, uh, empowered society – that got essentially dismantled by what were essentially leftover Confederate soldiers, warlords, and gangs running around just killing people, angry at at losing at the what the war did to the South. Really angry at having lost.
1: Lincoln's plan was to flood the South with teachers and housing, and there was going to be a mass education effort. And would it have been uneven? Absolutely. Would there still have been these uh, racist hanging people for oh, yeah. black
2: people oh, yeah.
1: for voting? Absolutely. Yeah. But what, what Grant did is he had, they had a four-year head start on Grant. And then when Grant starts sending in troops to, to clean out the KKK and certain states, and then he had the toughest situation, if he sends in troops into Mississippi, does he not win Mississippi when he runs for election? Right. So he has to wait right. in order to get the votes, and then he would send in troops afterwards. But I, this is what I picture. I picture if you loved Lincoln at war, you would have really loved him in peace. I agree and and re, and then the third term i bet you he would have ran for a third term he's yep. only 56 yep. and if he runs for a third term backed up by grants two terms yep. i mean we're a different country right now
2: yeah you're absolutely right it's a it's a sad sad piece of the story uh did you learn anything about douglas that surprised you everything oh really i
1: mean that he was that he continued to get better and smarter that uh that you know and i think it's a lot of times i was told this about about boxers, like when they win a world championship at twenty nine, nothing ever compares to it again. That even though he had other challenges and other successes, and would go advise six other presidents, his zenith was fighting for uh, freedom, uh, for that Thirteenth Amendment, mm-hmm. and that was his pinnacle. And he didn't have never had uh, the same type of high as he had after that war, even though it had came up with so much death and destruction. And also how he was determined to fight for women's rights. Right. I mean, the guy pivoted right away with Susan B. Anthony and other uh, female leaders because I did a feature for What Made America Great. And I kind of stumbled onto Frederick Douglass all over this, showing up at uh, women's rights events, saying, we got to get them the right to vote. This isn't right. And, you know, hanging out there with them when they were petitioning Woodrow Wilson, you know, during the World War One, And they, basically these women were getting arrested. So Douglas never stopped. And also when I did the feature, I went up to Douglas's last home, which sits on top of the hill overlooking Washington, D.C. And they say the day that he died, he came in. He basically typed a few things up and was all set to go to another woman's event at night. Wow. It was all pumped up for it. And he dies of a heart attack in the hall. Oh. So this guy did not stop. No. He had the same frustration with parents, too. You know, his kids weren't nearly as driven. You know, his son, one was a bit of a screw up. You know, and he would give them and take over, let them take over the business. and They kind of run it into the ground. His wife, you know, you saw the human element. His wife wasn't engaged. She never learned to read. So all the stuff that he was doing, he could never really talk to her about it. She didn't fully understand it. So he would have other women, not necessarily, not clear if he had a relationship with him, but intellectual relationship with him to sustain himself personally and challenge himself. So, uh, and he would also brag about that, you know, I'm part Indian, I'm part white, I'm part black. I'm not just one. And uh, depending on how you look at me, you can see me and uh, see me in anything you want. The other thing I think is important about Douglas is he said, I'll work with anyone if there's something I can work with them with. So even if I'm not perfect, if I could teach them a little bit about being on camera, even if he doesn't like me, if I could teach him to be better on camera, he would deal with me. I didn't have to be the ideal person for Frederick Douglas to befriend. He would talk to people about their different expertise and take that from them and move on.
2: Yeah, he, And I he, thought that was good. You remind way of me of that, that. To me, I sort of saw that there, there were aspects of him that were very much like Martin Luther King, and that was the part that I thought was. He, he He just wanted us to all move forward, improve, get better, try to see my point of view, and persuade. He was an arguer. he persuade people to, to his position. And he, he wanted to bring people on board that didn't necessarily see things the way he did he wanted to bring everybody over because he was so clear he was so clear on what right was and what where we needed to be and uh yeah I completely agree with you he he was uh, uh the, the fact that um gosh when I think about his life uh and the fact that a lot of people haven't read his words and don't understand what a great figure he was is is one of the it's It's a mystery and i i i I believe that's something that's going to get solved soon, and maybe your book will be a part of it, but that if you just read his words, they're so compelling he's such a genius, he was so persuasive and so his argumentation was so clear and so good and come from the from experience and by the way, as far as his experience with women and his family life and stuff. He, uh, of course, he had problems with relationships. He was a slave. He, his family was ripped out from under him. He was beaten terribly. I mean, he, he was sent away as a ra- wayward slave, as somebody that needed to be sort of broken uh, before he escaped. I mean, he really, of course, he had relationship problems. But I find it kind of interesting that people do point as his sons and describe them the way you describe them. If you read Charles' letters, that was, that was no, that dude had some horsepower intellectually, he may have had, he, i think he had some bad luck really because he was a he was a yeah. really interesting kid with a lot to say it was
1: tough having you, frederick Douglass as your yeah, dad.
2: exactly he's not frederick Douglass, he nor nor was he ever going to be but i think charles uh, he he had some sort of important positions in Washington too uh, along the way, and he and he was a great observer of what was going on there, and he he was kind of like his dad is a little bit magnanimous, like it's like you know, we don't like this, this is they don't they don't see it right yet, but they're going to get there, we're going to get them there, so yeah, did right,
1: you, and and they both fought in the Civil War for the fifty fourth. Yes, they so. did. It, That's it
2: was, a, especially sure. again Charles again was I think distinguished if I remember right. Did have did you write a Grant book? Are you going to do that? No,
1: but I I read it. He's, I read uh, the thing that got me excited about that era was Ron Chernow's book.
2: It's amazing, right?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, when he when I finished that book, I thought I lost a family member when he, here he is with throat cancer and they're scraping his throat in order to finish his memoir in a big race to get his family some type of money because he trusted one of his former soldiers who ended up being a Bernie Madoff character. Yep. And because it was General Grant that invested, all his friends invested. Yep. So all his friends lose all their money. He loses all his money. And he gets his house donated, and Mark Twain comes in at the end and says, what kind of book deal did you cut? Goes, oh, they gave me X amount of dollars, and what are you doing? You have any problem? No, no, I just got the money. He goes, no, no, we're redoing that deal. And he put together the best memoir in history, yep. and he was motivated because he was fighting. He knew he was dying. And number two, he wanted to leave his family something. And to see them physically woven in with razors, cutting the tumors out of his throat, Yep. Um, you know, because he smoked, that's got to be 99% yeah, of it. Yep
2: had, had cancer. the cancer, yep.
1: but I mean, when he died, I, I was like, in the, in his simplicity, he was great. Like Truman in a way. Right. I'm not saying Truman was a captain in the military and this guy was a great general, but he had greatness in him. But over and over again, he was falling short until that moment of the war um, rises. Right. And what did they teach us in school? Dr. Drew, that he was a corrupt guy and yeah. he was, his, he was no. and he was his, uh, Drunk. His administration was marked by corruption. Yep. Drunk. And it's not the case. Not at all. Now Cherno all. was very kind to him.
2: Yeah. No, I I, but I you didn't. know
1: addiction, let me tell you if you find this, some people are born that way. Yeah. Doesn't he sound like a guy that you know, we I have always had I had a couple of friends in eleventh grade, I remember we first started having a few beards and the age was eighteen. Yeah. And I remember just watching these guys not stop.
2: No, those and are real like, those what are, are you real, doing? real deal alcoholics. And he never he never lost control he would have, and he knew it if he kept going and He had a couple of binges along the way where he, when he would use he would completely lose control. It's just he just would that's he has that kind of alcoholism, but they kept him under lock and key his wife did his his personal assistant did they they watched him like a hawk, and so they kept him sober you know it's not the way. You know, you normally keep somebody sober, but they were able to do it. And he had certainly had other things because his life was so dramatic. He had other kinds of drama that was stimulating him to keep him from from drinking. But um, the way Chernow described it made sense to me. That that fit the way his alcoholism probably manifested. And and because I was so ignorant to reconstruction, uh, the the Grant book sent me down a rabbit hole with that. I thought, oh my god, we have a collective. Some sort of collective amnesia about that period of history because it's so traumatic and so awful. I know. I think we pushed yeah. it away. We don't have to think about it. That's when I immediately started reading all the Frederick Douglass stuff and more about Reconstruction, and that's why I read the Andrew Johnson book. But <clears throat> to to I want one last quick question, and then I got to let you go. The the did you uh, John uh, Frederick Douglass wrote two autobiographies, right, or three? Two.
1: He updated it the same one. He updated it three times.
2: Three times. And did you did you read the the last one or the first one? Which one did you read?
1: All of them. All of them. I read all of them. Was the first one was about 120 pages. Ah. And, and you know what's so interesting about the last one? He goes and visits the guy, his last owner. His name is uh, Alt. And he's dying, and he asked to see Douglas because Douglas this time is very famous and kind of vilified him because by telling the truth. And he goes to see him at the end. And that interaction is something, you know, I I what I did is I researched to be able to outline the book and then do the book. And then when I finally finished the book and they were reviewing my transcript, I went back and reread almost everything again. Wow. Because you learn more. You keep reading now. Yeah. Now, once you learn, you pick then up you more. know what to, else to look yeah, for, right? Yeah, yeah, So I just started picking it up. And I'm like, wow, he went back there. And he said, you know, uh, I always knew you were going to get away. I always knew that you were not going to spend your life a slave. And he said, I didn't hate you. I hated slavery. And I'm like, wow. To get to that moment where you, you could look at a dying slave owner, as a former slave and say, I didn't hate you. I hated slavery. I'm like, wow, who are we to hold on to grudges? Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean,
2: yeah. Gr- gratitude, I, I just, gratitude is always a healthier place to be. And, and uh,
1: in theory, in theory <laughs> if you can get there.
2: It's hard to get there. It's hard to get there. Well, Brian, thank you for sharing the thoughts on the book. I, I recommend it most highly to people. It's a great way into the topic of both these men. Uh, and again, you, you'll hit the highlights, and you'll hit them in a way that uh, don't leave anything out. Um, it's the president and the freedom fighter, Abraham Lincoln, Frederick Douglass, and their battle to save America's soul. And my prediction is, if you read this book, it will send you on a it'll send you on a path. You'll start reading more biographies learn about, more. about both these men because they they are really such fascinating figures and their shadows loom large over us today we have a lot we can learn from them both in terms of how they thought in terms of how they lived their lives in terms of what they were feeling at the time and uh, their potential is up to us to to live out so uh, maybe it's time but we all paid good attention to these guys Brian thank you so much and uh, I'll see you in New York we get him Dr. Drew everybody, talk to you thanks, soon thanks Brian me, everybody we'll see yeah. you next time
0: for calling times and topics follow the show on twitter at dr drew podcast that's d-r-d-r-e-w podcast the music from today's episode can be found on the swinging sounds of the dr drew podcast now available on itunes and while you're there don't forget to rate the show The Dr. Drew Podcast is a Corolla Digital production and is produced by Chris Loxamana and Gary Smith. For more information, go to drdrew.com. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew Podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or doctor. Dr. we